Hi, you're listening to Global Skycast, the show that brings you all of the most up-to-date aviation news, interviews, and insight from around the world. Good morning and welcome to another Asian Skycast. My name is Elod Davis. I'm the Media and Communications Director here at Asian Sky Group and Asian Sky, Sky Media. Delighted today to be joined by Dan Stroyfurt, who is the founder of ADSB Exchange. Dan, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing? Nice, nice to be here. Perfect. And you're in somewhere in Arizona, I think. Is, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Usually, I'm in I'm in Arizona. I'm I'm on vacation right now in uh, in Utah, but uh, typically, yeah, I'm in Arizona. So uh, you know, out here in the in the quite warm Southwest, especially uh, especially these days here, warm, warm and dry, unlike uh, Hong Kong, which is warm and wet, unfortunately. <laughs> there you go. Um, so so for people that don't know. Could you maybe just sort of start by outlining exactly what ADSB, ADSB Exchange does, please? Sure, sure. So, so this started uh, in 2016 as really more of a uh, hobby project for me. Uh, I, I, you know, at the time, the software-defined radio was was starting to become more common, and ADSB was being mandated around the world. So. Um, you know, and I don't know, for, for those who may not know, ADSB basically is a, is a broadcast from the transponder of the aircraft that, that displays, you know, that transmits the position of the aircraft every second or so. So using these signals, you know, there, there were a lot of, uh, at the time, and there still are, you know, groups of, of, of hobbyists that were very interested in collecting this data, whether they're airplane enthusiasts or, you know, radio enthusiasts or sometimes both. Uh, you know, lots of folks were, were putting up receivers and, and able to receive these signals. So I, I came up with, you know, I, I guess it's somewhat of a new idea, but I mean, at the time, it was basically, you know, getting a group together and saying, hey, okay, if everybody sends these signals to me, I can put them on a central map and we can have an overall display of, of all the aircraft folks are receiving. And really, it just, it just kind of grew from there uh, up to today where we have you know, 9,000 participants uh, sending data from their receivers around the world. And we aggregate it all, put it up on the map, and make it available for everyone to uh, to browse. And you can see many times some very interesting interesting things out there, whether it's interesting to, you know, the person individually or, you know, newsworthy items, things like that. So uh, that's, that's kind of how it started and, and where it's at right now. And so you describe yourself as an enthusiast. What type of enthusiast would you would you say you are? Is that an aviation enthusiast or or, a, or radio enthusiast? Yeah, yeah. So uh, myself, I've always been interested in aviation. Um, when I was about, uh, oh, I don't know, gosh, I think I was nineteen or twenty. I was driving by the local airport and I said, "Hey." let's stop by and see what it would take to, to do some lessons. And so I did that and I've been, uh, I've been, uh, you know, a, a private pilot for the last 25 years or so. And, uh, so I, I'm definitely into sort of all things aviation, uh, on the flip side, I was also, you know, in, in my career and, and also another hobby I have is, you know, anything technology and it related. So in this case, there was uh, a bit of an overlap there and I was able to, to put all this together to sort of, uh, you know, uh, create this system, be able to host it for other enthusiasts who, who wanted to see the data. Absolutely. And was, was there a sort of something that happened that, that made you make the decision to commercialize the project? When we say commercialize, I mean, 
you know, it, it was a it, it's a great site and it was gathering a lot of data. But uh, you know, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, there are uh, definitely expenses and, and and bills to pay, servers to run, things like that. So, you know, we did have a need for some some financial income. And I wouldn't say that, you know, what we try, you know, we have to commercialize to some extent to be able to pay the bills, but we try not to make it, you know, full on corporate and all of that, right? We still want to remain with our sort of hobbyists and enthusiast roots because, you know, those are the people that feed the data and those are the people that are interested in this. And so we really try to stick to that as much as we can. But, you know, obviously there are bills to pay and, and expenses that we have. Uh, data centers and storage and so forth. So we did need some some form of, of, of income. And, that, and that's really how it started. It was never formed to be, you know, some sort of large corporation. It was really formed as a, uh, you know, a service to the hobbyists. And, you know, as part of that, we did need to pay some of the bills. So that's that's sort of how it came about there. But I, I think you do offer API access into the database backend. And, and I think you do access uh, for the data uh, as well. Do you have commercial clients that use that data? Yes, yes, we do. I mean, we do definitely have commercial clients. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it could be anywhere from uh, airlines to, um, you know, uh, business jet operators, uh, folks that want to look at fuel consumption. There are all kinds of uh, applications for the data, you know, we, we we do donate the data sometimes to uh, universities who are doing studies, things like that. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's a, a growing interest for you know these uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and UAVs and how do they avoid manned aircraft, things like that. So. You know, airspace analysis, uh, air traffic control. There, there is, there is a definitely a market for the data, and we do offer it. We do offer it commercially, yes. And so, how would you pitch yourself against the more, um, the more well-known um, companies out there that, that have uh, the same similar sort of data? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, we we are a little bit different in that we don't. Uh, we don't redact or block any of the data that we receive. So, you know, if we receive a signal from an airplane, whether it's a, a military plane or a business jet or or anything, you know, we, we receive that signal, we pass it along, we put it up on the map. Um, you know, some of the other services you'll see where, you know, if it's a if the high profile individual, it might be hidden. Um, you know, they, they maybe filter out some of the military aircraft. You just never really know what you're what you're actually seeing and, and, and what you're not seeing. So, you know, that's one aspect. And, and the other aspect is, you know, a lot of the other sites focus on, you know, your your typical airline flight from point A to B. And they're trying to answer the question, well, is it on time and what gate does it go to and things like that. And that's certainly important for, you know, uh, folks who are airline travelers. But our focus is really on, you know, sort of the nitty gritty details of the aviation operation itself. I mean, for example, if you go to our site, you'll see things like, you know, what mode the autopilot might be in, or you, know, you could export uh, Google Earth's flight track of exactly where the aircraft uh, landed and, and what the flight path was. And, you know, a lot of sort of more nitty gritty details and things like that, that, that maybe those other sites don't really gather or don't, don't share with the general public. We were, we were talking um, just before, just before we started the podcast, and I sort of admitted the fact that I have had my own personal ADSB account for probably about a year or so now. Um, 
and actually you you actually just touched upon the reason why I do have one it's that not hiding uh, what those aircraft are so being able to actually see the registration um, of something that's flying over for me as an aviation enthusiast um, is is absolutely one of the key reasons um, why I am a subscriber right right and, and you know some people will uh, uh, you know, some people express the concern that, oh, this is a, a security issue, but, you know, it's, it's really not because all the signals we're picking up are being broadcast in the clear by the aircraft itself. If, you know, if, if there's a security need by the aircraft, if it's military or something like that, I mean, they, of course, all aircraft do have the ability to turn off the receiver. So it's not like we're showing anything that, that's not already out there. We're just sort of making it more available for folks to see, which I, which you know, which I think is a good thing. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And so you mentioned earlier on that you have, um, I think you said nine thousand receivers around the world. Are there any sort of holes in that coverage? Well, w- what we see is that typically the receivers are are more clustered around uh, population centers. So you know, especially in in the U.S. and and Western Europe. Uh, you'll see a lot of receivers around, you know, major cities and then fewer receivers out in the more rural areas. Uh, if you get outside of the U.S. and, and Western Europe, um, you know, for, for example, uh, South America or, or Africa, for example, there are, are far fewer receivers in those locations. I mean, there are some, but there are just fewer. And I think that really goes back to you know, number one, the infrastructure, um, the, the availability of internet connectivity and reliable power and just, you know, the general availability of these sorts of electronics. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, Amazon Prime delivers to the Congo or not, but, you know, <laughs> that could be, uh, that could make it a little bit more difficult to get feeds from, from some of these sites. Um, so, yeah, so really the more rural areas or, or, or off the beaten path uh, countries are where we you know, we, we specifically need receivers. Obviously, any, any receiver is a benefit, but those are the areas that are more uh, short on receivers than, you know, say, Los Angeles or Chicago or, you know, places like that. Is, it, is there one airport or one city that, that immediately springs to mind that you think, God, I would love to have a receiver there? Uh, let's see. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, there are probably some... some cities where maybe the government isn't too uh isn't too fond of, of our type of technology but then again i think a lot of in a lot of those places uh the receivers aren't running uh, you know the, the planes aren't broadcasting uh I, I mean really in most of the major cities we do have something i would say you know uh, you know out in the south pacific or or in africa are are, are some good ones you know we, we we do have a lot in asia not as many as in the U.S., but um, yeah, I mean, as far as a specific individual city, uh, I, I guess I, I, I couldn't say for sure at this point, you know. So I was talking to Richard and Christoph at um, Wings, who I think you, you guys are, are in touch anyway. Um, but I was, I was just explaining, so I, I started this whole flight tracking thing myself as well a long time ago, so um, using ACAR signals and cell count codes and, and all that sort of stuff. I was sort of recounting the first um, mode S box I, I bought. I think it, was, um, it wasn't the AirNav one, it was the Kinetics, Kinetic one. Uh, and I remember it cost 500 English pounds um, at the time, which, which at the time, I mean, it was worth it. It was very definitely worth it. Um, but since then, and, and again, we had this conversation um, just before we started the podcast, um, I, have a, I have a 
range of different things uh, in my apartment that, that can drag aircraft. But the last one I thought, uh, last one I bought, sorry, was was literally five pounds, five English pounds. That difference between five hundred going rapidly down to five five pounds over the course of maybe I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine nine years or so, has made this technology more available to people in lower income countries, which obviously helps uh, you get more data, obviously helps me with data as well. So it's, it's just an incredible thing, I think. I think we're, we're likely to see more and more of these low cost um, receivers sort of popping up in, in all of these weird and wonderful places, which personally I can't wait for. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the primary way that, that most folks are feeding these days is, you know, uh, uh, an SDR USB dongle, which, you know, as you mentioned, those can be obtained uh, pretty cheap. In fact, we're, we actually manufacture our own just because there were some availability issues with some of the other ones. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that along with a Raspberry Pi, typically in the, the difficulty there as of late has been the Raspberry Pi shortage. There aren't enough in the supply chain and, you know, the, the, the prices are are on the way up until they can get the supply chain under control. But, uh, you know, those are that's the most popular way that, that people are feeding nowadays by far. Mm. Going more into the, sort of the mode S code and, and how that's tracked. Um, so mode S code is uh, it's effectively a 16-bit hexadecimal code, isn't it? With the first part of the code effectively relating to the country um, that the aircraft is registered in. So let's say, four, I think 43 is the UK. So if you see the code starting at 43, it's it's for the UK. How do you um, keep that information up to date? So how do you match those codes to an individual aircraft? Right, right. So so as you mentioned, there's this six-digit hexadecimal code that is programmed into the transponder, basically by the avionics technician when they install it. And we've seen some that are programmed incorrectly as well, but that's a different story. Um, so this this six-digit hex number, as you mentioned, uh, the the ICAO, the international uh, Civil Aviation uh, Authority kind of allocates these blocks to different countries. And like you said, I think you said three, four, three or four, six is, is the UK. Um, but, but, but anyhow, each country has a range and then it's up to that individual country how they're going to assign that range to their, the tail numbers that are registered in their aircraft because it's a, it's a one-to-one relationship between these codes and, and the tail number. So, for example, in the U.S., there's a mathematical formula that where they they allocate you know if you, if you know a tail number you can calculate what the hex code is going to be and vice versa um and many countries the, for example the us the uk canada australia actually publish their registration database so that's uh you know downloadable from their various internet sites and then that's actually how we get a lot of the information is we download it from those sites and you know that includes the tail number the, the hex code maybe a lot of times the owner uh, the type of aircraft, that sort of thing, and and we assemble that all into a, a database, and that's sort of what the the backing is to uh, you know when you click on a plane, how you can see the information about what the plane is. Uh, you know, occasionally there will be planes that you know say from countries that don't publish the data, or uh, sometimes it's a miscoded hex, or it's a brand new plane where you know we may not have the data on it, but you'll still see the target. It just won't be. You know, and you'll know what the hex code they're broadcasting is, but we may not always have the, the type information. Um, so that's sort of kind of where that comes from, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine it's it's much much the same as tying up 
uh, aircraft registrations to sort of serial numbers in places like Mexico and, and places like that that don't necessarily publish their own registration data. Unfortunately, uh, sounds like a bit of a nightmare, definitely. Yeah, and even the ones that aren't published, um, especially the militaries, because you know generally none of the military ones are are published. But you know, like I said, there are a, a very enthusiastic group of of hobbyists and data gatherers who, uh, you know, I don't, know, I don't know where they get it. If they sit at airports with binoculars watching uh, what the planes are, or if they're the guys working on them, but they'll actually map it out. So, you know, there are mappings for a fair, a fair good number of even those military planes that, that, that are in the database. And that's all basically just from, uh, you know, people doing their individual research and submitting their information to us. So actually, I think that's probably the perfect moment um, to end the podcast. Uh, so Dan, thank you once again for uh, joining us today. Um, if people wanted to go and find out more, uh, see for themselves, I think the web address is www.adsbexchange.com. Yes, yes, that's correct. And you can go there, click on the map, and you can browse live air traffic from around the world. Um, and, you know, that <laughs> I'm told it's addictive, so... You know, if you go there, be prepared to spend some time. <laughs> I, I can definitely vouch for that. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Perfect. Great. Thanks.